0: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And today, I'm going to be telling you guys about the murder of Sister Roberta Alam. Today, I am drinking... It's a little embarrassing, but I'm drinking a black cherry (laughs) Kool-Aid. So... My friends and I had a day this weekend where we all bought our childhood snacks and drinks and ate and drank them and watched Spy Kids. And we had some leftover
1: Kool-Aid. So that is
0: what I am drinking
1: because I'm 12. Yeah, I am drinking an apple spice macchiato or apple crisp, not spice, apple crisp macchiato with 2% milk instead of oat milk from Starbucks that my sister bought me. Because she loves me. Let me ask, while we're on this subject, what kind of
0: childhood snacks immediately come to your mind? My mind? Mm-hmm. Those little,
1: they still exist, the little Debbie tri- Christmas tree cakes. Yes. Yes. Yep. Those are my dad's absolute favorite. And then nerds. I ate a lot of nerds. I always liked them. Erica knows, because she oh, loves juice. them,
0: too. Oh, bug juice. Yeah.
1: Uh, we got taquitos.
0: Yeah. Taquitos.
1: taquitos okay yes sorry it cut out okay. oh no you're good <laughs> taquitos, delicious
0: a lot of little debbie things star crunches oatmeal cream pie swiss cake rolls that you put in the freezer if you haven't tried it 10 out of 10 recommend just so much random stuff and i felt so disgusting the rest of the day after eating all of the processed food but <laughs> I, it was fun i very good i do recommend it um and then we made like cocktails out of the drinks we had so it was a fun little adult twist on it and then i judged one of my friends very harshly because he said that spy kids 3 was the best one and we all know that's just not true is he okay exactly we shamed him the whole day
1: (laughs) i mean i guess it is kyle but like i assume kyle shout out kyle
0: (laughs) i really hope kelsey you're listening and you show him this little clip please please do because It needs to happen. So anyway, grab whatever you're drinking and let's dive in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more crime over coffee content by signing up for a patreon you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content to check out this opportunity and sign up for the crime over coffee patreon visit www.patreon.com slash crime over coffee pod
1: thank you again for all of your support all right well hopefully you guys are still here after that long intro of Abby and I talking. (laughs) Her and I have discussed on a total side note just doing a podcast where we just talk about life instead of a crime podcast and I don't know the more that we do that the more I'm like that could be so fun or it could be completely awful and we would be kicked off the universe. It would be a shit
0: show and we would absolutely lose our editor (laughs) because it would just be rambling nonsense.
1: But if we did that we wouldn't need an editor. We would just like post the rambles. Oh
0: gosh. I'm sure everyone would stick around for it.
1: Let us know in the comments if you just want to hear Abby and I (laughs) talk about random things.
0: Everybody just responds no dear lord (laughs) please don't. (laughs)
1: Which I totally get. I don't blame you. Uh Uh-huh. All right. So today's story is about Sister Roberta Lamb, who was originally from Minnesota, and she actually studied theology at Fordham University in New York. And she then went on to work as a coordinator of adult religious programs for the Diocese of Wheeling in Charleston, West Virginia. She was described as her friends as a very outspoken woman who was extremely passionate about social justice issues. Her brother Chris Alam talked about how Sister Roberta really wanted to become a priest, but at the time, and I believe, I guess I don't know for sure now, but at the time in the Catholic religion, it was not allowed for a woman to become a priest. I do not know what that's like in 2023, I'm not fully knowledgeable about Catholicism, so that take that as you will. But this was in 1977 that she was upset about this. So it's been, obviously, like 40 years. So she was kind of different than what you'd expect for someone who really wanted to become a nun. So she drove a bright orange sports car. She was incredibly athletic. And she enjoyed writing poetry, which that part like is more of a calming aspect, but the athletic and the orange sports collar driving just seems not as <laughs> laid back as somebody you think would think of wanting to become a nun. I love that combo. I think it's great. So by the age of 26, Roberta had officially made the decision to join the sisters of St. Joseph in West Virginia. And so a few months later in early June of 1977, She officially moved into the mother house in West Virginia. So at this time, Sister Roberta was not yet a nun, as it is kind of a long process to get to the point of becoming a nun. And so she was a pre-novitiate candidate or a postulate nun. So she was referred to as Sister Robin. It doesn't matter that I called her Sister Roberta in the intro. So for those of you that aren't aware, me being one of them, what the process is to become a nun, I did kind of look it up. And this was honestly, I found a like how to page about it. And so, which I've kind of heard about it before, like the process, but it, it starts with meaning a few qualifications. So you have to be baptized as a Christian. You have to live as a single, widowed or annulled woman. You have to be 18 or 21 years old or... Less than 40 to 50 years old is typically the age. If you have children, like if you've been married and you have children, you do have to raise children until they're 18 and then you can become a nun. You can't have any outstanding debt in order to become a nun. You have to have good physical and mental health. Then it's uh, from there, it's a conversation with God about determining how dedicated you're going to be and to ask God if that is what he has planned for your spiritual life. And so then if you feel as though God is calling you to become a nun, you speak to a family member, or a spiritual mentor, and you find an area that will or a place that will take you to kind of come under their wing and raise you up as a nun, I guess is the best way to word that, I think. So during that process, you're talking with nuns, you're figuring out the process of everything, you're attending different religious events to really make sure that it's something that you want to do. And so once you are you apply to the community, you can become that prepostulate, which is what Sister Robin was. And that's only if you decide that this is for sure what you want to do. And then you start Living with the community, and you live there for six months to two years. It kind of varies, and then you officially can decide if you actually want to become a nun, and you can take the vows to become a temporary one, and then you you become a junior sister, and then you later take the vows to become a fully fledged sister. So it's kind of a long process, but I wanted to explain that to kind of give the better idea of what was going on in Sister Robin's life. So she had gone there and she was known as Sister Robin, but not a nun yet. At the time of our story on June 13th, 1977, she had just started an eight day silent retreat, which was something that was normal for individuals who wanted to become a nun. So while they were at the mother house, they would have this silent retreat where they were encouraged and expected to pray and to fully contemplate the decision to become a nun. Something that I've heard before about becoming a nun is, I mean, a lot of it is saying goodbye to your past life. So if you have family or a husband or like you're saying goodbye to that and to kind of that person that you were, and you're becoming a person of God fully. And so you kind of shed the life that you had before. And so she was in that process where she was expected to really contemplate and be 100% sure of her decision because once you make the decision like you're in it i believe the uh, understanding is if you were to leave becoming a nun you're kind of like shunned away from the religious community on june 13th 1977 the first day of her silent retreat around 10:30 in the morning sister robin grabbed an apple from the kitchen, grabbed her Bible, and then went to a hill located about 100 yards behind the building. And she sat on this bench, which was incredibly popular for praying because it was really peaceful and it overlooked the whole convent. It's not known exactly what happened between 10.30 and 1.50 in the afternoon, but around 1.50, the caretaker walked around the area where Robin had been praying and ended up discovering something horrific. So around that 150 time period, the caretaker stumbled across Sister Robin's dead body. She was about 40 yards away from the bench that she had been praying at and the bench had been tipped over. Sister Robin was found with her blouse and bra pulled all the way up, her pants and her underwear pulled all the way down and there was a tampon lane next to her body. So it was determined that at the time of her death, she was on her menstrual cycle and that was removed. So investigators were very quickly able to determine that she had been raped and strangled to death. They did not find any signs of defensive injuries. So it was determined that she was most likely snuck up on while she was praying. And so she didn't see anybody trying to attack her. And... She didn't even have a chance to fight. Initially, they started, they believed that the attacker had possibly come from the woods behind her, but they started to examine it and then they realized, based on the bruises and the marks on her body, that there was a thumb impression on her throat in the front, which told them that she had been strangled from the front. And so it was as if somebody walked straight up to her and then attacked her.
0: Well, I was going to say, I wonder if she was, you know, like someone snuck up on her and like knocked her down and then moved to her front. That makes sense to me too.
1: I think that makes a lot more sense. But also if she was praying and she had her eyes closed and like if she was praying out loud Mm.
0: or anything
1: like that, she may not have heard them coming up to her and if her eyes were closed, she wouldn't have seen it. That's a good point. So I think it's, it is very hard to determine just because of, what she was doing in that situation. It wasn't like she was just sitting there watching or like looking out or anything. She was in the middle of prayer. So after, or it's believed that after her murder, she was dragged from the bench to a slope, which they started to like look around and see what, who could have possibly done it or if there was any sort of evidence. And they weren't finding any clues or any evidence. They did look and see the Spadel golf course right beside the convent. And they're like, well, that's, it's kind of hidden because of the hills. And so they went and they investigated and spoke with every single golfer who was at that course the day of her murder. And with talking with all of them, they were able to clear all of them from being suspects and they didn't get any more information. All the the golfers were like, we didn't see anything or hear anything Like from the spot where Sister Robin was murdered. You couldn't see the golf course, so they wouldn't have been able to see up there. But they also didn't hear anything. It
0: also seems like that provides a way that somebody could enter the convent
1: maybe without being noticed. Correct. If they had stuck through the golf course and then kind of Mm stuck off the path. There was also a group of... Workers from a salvage company who was removing telephone cables from poles near the convent. And so police reached out to them and interviewed all of them. And then they also had interviewed some of the nuns at this convent. A part of this reasoning for interviewing and talking with all the people from the salvage company was that a few days before she was murdered, it was reported that Sister Robin had made had talked with one of the workers because apparently the guy was making obscene remarks about her and the other nuns. And so, I mean, we saw from her personality before she was probably pretty spunky and probably stood up for herself and her fellow sisters. And so she didn't really take it. And people overheard that. And so they were like, well, that's suspicious. Check him. And the nature of the crime. Yeah, it was definitely the, the, the rape and the leaving the body displayed like that is very, much like a screw you kind of thing in the Mm -hmm. sense that like I don't respect your religion or your right to protect your body. And so it would not be unlikely for it to be somebody who had for whatever reason disliked nuns or was against the religion. Police did determine that none of the workers were suspects so they were able to clear all of them. I don't know if they were able to determine the exact man that she had spoken to. I couldn't find that anywhere but I would be curious to know if they were because that would be somebody that I would find incredibly suspicious. There were multiple descriptions given by a lot of witnesses that had seen a man in the area in the few months leading up to her murder. And it was somebody that they hadn't seen in the area before. And so they created a composite sketch based on all these descriptions. And so they had an idea of kind of what they were looking for. One of the witnesses actually said that they had seen the man around the time of the murder at the convent between 1030 and 1130 a.m which they claimed that they had been driving by the convent on a road next to it. And they had noticed him exit his car and walk across to the embankment below the area where Sister Robin was found, which is sketch really suspicious. Yeah. So he was described by this witness as unkept with a dark complexion, shaggy black hair, black eyes, and a beard. And the witnesses said that he was a medium build between 30 and 33 years old, about five foot, 10 inches to six foot tall. And he may have had a small brown poodle like dog with him. They had witnessed him with the dog a few different times. They even went as far, these witnesses, because they'd seen him so many times to know what kind of car he drove. So they were able to tell police that this man drove a faded blue or gray 1969 Chevy Impala. It was rusty and it had some dents. And... Witnesses were pretty sure that it had West Virginia plates. They also saw a few stickers on the back of the car. One of them was coal mining related. One of them said Jesus. And one of them was an image of praying hands. However, the identity of this man is still unknown to this day, even with this entire description. Oh my gosh, that's so much.
0: And they were able
1: to... Wow. This is more information than we get about most of Mm -hmm. our suspects. And witnesses were like, no, I've got like this pretty intense description other than the fact that his name is this. And they're like, yeah, we're not sure. I do find it interesting that the stickers on the back, two of them are religious. Mm -hmm. If he was involved, because then that kind of throws out our theory of him hating nuns. Well, I mean, maybe it doesn't, but it does make me question a lot more about who could have done this
0: well you know and with crimes like this and stuff there's so much psyche that you could look into that you know maybe he is religious but for whatever reason it's none specifically that he's like triggered
1: by i just i'm still baffled that they were never able to identify him so another person that we could look at is actually a serial killer that was active in the months leading up to Sister Robin's murder. So there were four women who had been raped and killed in a similar manner in Pennsylvania, less than an hour away from the convent. And so police still to this day believe that she could have been a victim of the serial killer, but they ruled it out because there was a different M.O. So the four women that had been strangled that were tied to the serial killer were strangled with an article of their own clothing, whereas Sister Robin was strangled with the attacker's bare hands. Now, he was on a a convent and there were probably people around. And so if he was in a rush, maybe he was taking the clothes off too. I have no idea, but it is something to consider. You know, and maybe
0: because of the nature of her clothing, it was just different. I don't know. That is interesting though.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Or maybe that's an escalation, you know. Uh, yeah, it could be. I don't know if that guy was still whoever that serial killer was was still active after this or not. But I don't even know if they were ever, ever caught that serial killer cuz I don't even know the name of him who they suspected. There was another guy that they did look into named John Shoplack, and he lived in the area. And the reason that they initially suspected him was because he knew details about the crime that hadn't been released to the public, which is a pretty telltale sign, typically. So there was also like this conversation with his ex-girlfriend where... His ex-girlfriend told police that he had choked her once and he had told her, John had told his ex-girlfriend that he didn't like Catholic people. And then John and his ex-girlfriend broke up one month before Sister Robin was murdered, which could have been a stressor. There was an episode of The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes, who covered this episode, and they... What had happened was they had taken John's blood type from his military records and it didn't match the DNA, like the blood from the the DNA from the blood found at the crime scene that they believed belonged to the attacker. And so they ruled him out. However, Paul Holes on this show explained that the blood samples that had been taken from the military records have a fairly high error rate due to outdated technology. Mm. So Paul doesn't really rely on the accuracy of whether or not of that dna profile there another suspicious thing about john he had previously been accused of raping two girls and had been convicted of robbing his grandmother and during the burglary where he robbed his grandma he actually cut her finger off in order to steal a ring and then tied a telephone wire around her neck to keep her quiet jeez (laughs) so he's obviously a violent guy yeah yeah he also told one of his friends that he had killed a nun, like oh. confessed to one of his friends. Well, that's pretty damning. However, he told her that he had strangled her with a belt, which was not true. But the one thing that he knew about it that I, that was like the big thing that they hadn't really released was he said that he thought the girl that he raped was a virgin because there was blood coming out. When he, however, like I said, she was on her t- on her menstrual cycle, so that was an interesting fact that he told his friend, and definitely something that mm-hmm. was suspicious.
0: Well, I just don't feel like you're admitting to murder if you didn't do it, unless you're trying to get attention in jail or something,
1: you know? Yeah, it's I, and you know, guys are dumb, but I don't feel like when they're sitting together and having their guy nights, they're not all sitting there trying to out cool the other one and be like, Hey, I killed somebody. They're talking about stupid things and trying to compare other things. I don't feel like it's this. So John ended up dying in 2019. He had been hospitalized prior to his death though. And so because of that, the hospital most likely has tissue samples on file or has them somewhere. And so the Ohio County Sheriff's Office is pursuing the sample and trying to get it in order to compare it to the DNA profile of the attacker. But they have been unsuccessful so far. And that's all the information I have. This case is still unsolved. So if you guys know anything related to the murder of Sister Roberta Lamb or Sister Robin, please contact the West Virginia State Police at 304 746 2100 or the Wheeling Police Department at 304-234-3664.
0: Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepot at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.